we've been talking about intimacy, and, and we've said, this is like relationship 101. Communication and good communication is critical to intimacy. Would you agree with that? And what we said last week, we began this, intim- communication is not just about talking. Good Lord, we are good at talking. Oh, me, I'm, my wife, sometimes she goes, I need you to listen more, okay? You talk, talk, talk all the time. And sometimes my relationship with God, I talk all the time. God goes, just, God sometimes goes, listen, because listening, really hearing the other person is a vital component of intimacy. And here's the thing. Let me just ask you guys something. If you've been a Christian, you are a Christian, do you actually believe that God could speak to you and that you could hear him? <laughs> Kimmy's the only one that says yes. If it's yes, say yes. Yes? Yes. You and I know. Come on. We've encountered, we've experienced moments when we're like, oh, it is so clear. God is speaking. And I, and I feel like things like this happen in our church. And it's one of the things I love about our church. Last week, a fellow came up to me, right, at the service. And he said, hey, I have to sense God doing something to me this morning. And I just had to do it. I said, what happened? He goes, well, when I woke up this morning, I just sensed God saying to me, take more money to church than you would normally do. So he said, he just packed some extra cash. I didn't know why. He came to church. And afterwards, he was praying for somebody. And as he was asking this person for prayer requests, he realized that his family was really struggling financially, possibly struggling just to have groceries even. And so he said, as he was praying, God just prompted his heart and going, you need to give that money to him. And he came up to me. And the reason why he talked to me, he's like, I don't want to do it. I want to kind of do the, I want to do it anonymously. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I need you. Take that money, and I need you to give that to the family and specifically say, this is what God said. God asked me to get some extra money. I didn't know why. Came to church today and realized it was for you. See, I feel like God, not I, I know, God is the ultimate communicator. He communicates communication. When God wants to speak, God will speak. The problem is, are we listening? And this thing is just about, okay, I'm listening. I'm, listening is intentional time away, set aside time, not distracted, set aside time to go, God, speak, I am listening. And we saw last week this example all over the Gospels in Jesus, yes? Before ministry, before serving, before meeting the needs of the people, before anything else, Jesus sets aside time early in the morning to get away, be alone with the Father, to hear and to listen to him. Why? Because the guiding principle in Jesus' life was John 5, right? John 5, verse 17, 19, 20. My father is always at work to this very day. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father, listen, whatever the father does, the son does. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I don't come up in the morning and go, this is my agenda. This is my priority. These are the things I want to do. He goes, I get up in the morning. I go, God, what are you doing? Where are you doing it? How are you doing it? And whom are you doing it? And how do I join you in that? Incredible. Father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. Jesus literally got up and said, what are you doing? Where are you doing it? And whom are you doing it? How are you doing it? And he aligned himself to that. We make it so hard. God is not just interested in the world, major cosmic affairs. He's interested in your life, my life, who you marry, where you work, how you work, where your friendships, relationships. He's interested in every intricate details of our lives. And God goes, the way I want you to follow me is to simply set aside time to ask, what are you doing? Where are you doing it? How are you doing it? And how can I join you in that? You guys. I said this a little bit last week. I'm going to talk a little bit more next week. How many of you feel like we have more to do in one day than we could actually humanly do? 
Can we be honest? A lot of us. Why is that? Can I just say something? I think Jesus is the greatest manager of people's time. He is the greatest manager of people's time. And I don't think Jesus will give you 10 things to do in a day when you can only do three. And if you find yourself overwhelmed trying to do 10 things when you can only do three, I'm going to gently and firmly say to you, Jesus didn't give that to you. You gave it to yourself. All of us are giving ourselves all kinds of things to do, running around ragged, like chicken cut his head cut off, and just completely tired, exhausted, worn out, frustrated, anxious because things aren't getting done. And Jesus is just going, are you hearing me? What I'm doing, where I'm doing it, how I'm doing it, align yourself to that. Do you know what God is doing, where he is doing it, how he's doing it? And how he's calling you and me to join him in that, in your life and in my life. You guys, the reason why this is so pastorally important for me is because I'm just going to share with you guys. And while we're talking about this pursuing intimacy with God, because I've seen this happen in our church. I've seen it happen in other churches. And I am concerned about this. Here's what I mean. There have been, a, there have been so many people that would come through the new community, and a lot of people who grew up in church walked away or just interested in Christianity for various reasons come to our church, and they hear what they say, the gospel. They hear the gospel. They hear the gospel taught. They hear the gospel lived out. They, they see, they speak, so on and so forth. And here's what happens to them. That, that they experience, has this happened to any of you? Just, just Byron? Can anybody else relate to this? Yeah? Okay. So you come, and you experience this encounter, and, 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 and you start growing spiritually. And here's what happens, though. Three, four, five years into it, you're part of our church. And at, at some point, people start saying stuff like, well, I'm just not growing spiritually anymore. Or, yeah, I'm just not. And they feel like they hit this ceiling. And, and, and a lot of times people go, well, I'm going to look for another church. They go, here's what I want to tell you. At some point, we all have to take personal responsibility for our own spiritual growth. Can I get an amen to that? Like, nobody can do this for you. Listen, I'm not discounting the role of community. Community is absolutely critical. Matter of fact, we can't do life without community. But as I said this last week, this is sort of like being in a discipline to sort of lose weight or get in better shape. You got to eat. You got to exercise. You got to do all kinds of things. And community absolutely is critical to encourage you, to keep you accountable, to challenge you, to cheer you on. But at the end of the day, nobody but you can make sure that you eat what right, you exercise, and so on and so forth. Spiritual life, at some point, you've got to come to a place where you're going, no one else can do this but me. I have to be responsible for my pursuit of God. Let me give you another example of why this is important. Do you know how many folks I think think that they have a personal, genuine relationship with God when in fact what they had was an encounter and influence of an environment? <laughs> Let me tell you how many people I talk to. They were heavily influenced in Christian college campus, some fellowship ministry for four years, or they grew up in a church, and they were surrounded by vital believers, passionate Christians. They're surrounded by them. They come to worship services, and they feel warm. They feel challenged. They're surrounded. They're actively involved. And they're but here's what happens. They leave that fellowship, or they leave that church. They go somewhere else, and all of a sudden, God seems totally unreal. All of a sudden, there's no motivation to pray. All of a sudden, Bible, you don't want to read the Bible. All of a sudden, you don't want to do anything. You're going, what's going on? Can I just suggest what may have happened to you? What may have happened is that what in fact what you're really encountering was an environment that's affecting and influencing your relationship. And what never happened was 
you personally saying an encounter with God, intimacy with God, growth in God, is me alone with God in his word, pursuing in prayer, and genuine intimacy. Listen to me. You can come to this church, love the sermons, love the worship. You can go to small groups. But if you are not personally nurturing, following, pursuing intimacy with God, at some point, like everybody else, you'll come to a place going, it's just not doing it for me. Environment, environment, and living off of an environment, no matter how powerful, vital, passion environment is, at some point, got to come to a place where this relationship with God is real, it's genuine, authentic, and yes, personal. Now, I shared this a little bit last week. At a, at a certain point, really there's no secret formula, you guys, to how you grow in intimacy with God. It comes through what I call grace-driven effort. Everybody say grace-driven effort. Ready, go. Grace-driven effort. Effort. One more time. Ready? Go. Grace-driven effort. Yes, the anchor is the gospel. Anchor is what Christ has done in and through and for us. That's the anchor. But the part that we play is this part that we've been talking about. Look at the scripture passages found all over the New Testament that reinforces this dual role of God and the gospel in you. Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation. Work it out. Work it out with fear and trembling. For it is God at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Colossians 1.28. He is the one we proclaim teaching so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, this is Paul. I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. This is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. He is saying, as God is at work in me, I strenuously, effortfully contend. I just got to ask you, what does your personal relationship with Jesus look like? Again, not discounting community. Are you feeding off of an environment? And what we're going to talk about next week, even more dangerous, some of us think our activity for Jesus is relationship with Jesus. Guys, when we talk about more next week, please don't confuse your busyness and your activity, even if it's a good thing, with a vital, intimate relationship that you have. They go together. They go together. Now, so what we're going to talk about this week, we talked a little bit about next, last week about setting aside time, time out. This week, I want to talk about the role of Scripture because I believe that the Word, the Bible, yes, the Bible, is the primary way that God speaks to us and for us, for us to be able to listen and hear from God. Two things real quick, and then I'll, we'll jump into Psalm 119. Number one, can anybody relate to this? There were times in my life where I wanted to audibly hear from God. Anybody else? Well, I actually got to ask. Anybody in your, have you ever heard audibly from God? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah. Okay. There's some of us that have. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It just hasn't happened to me. There are people who audibly hear from God. Now, here's the thing. When I was younger, I, and so I, I would do one of these. When I was in college, I remember I would get on my knees because I needed God to give me direction for something. And I would go, God, I need you to speak. And I'm not going to get up until I hear from you. And I realized I fell asleep, you know, it's like 8 o'clock in the morning. And my roommate's like, wake up. Oh, 
God didn't speak to me. Now, here's the thing. I am at a point in my life where I don't want God to speak audibly to me, okay? And here's why. When I look in the Bible, when God spoke audibly to somebody, the accountability went way up. I'm glad you find the image. Do you know what I'm talking about? You don't find in the Bible where God speaks audibly to somebody and that person responds by going, nah, what else you got? Nobody does that in the Bible. When God spoke audibly, people were like, yup, I'm doing it. I don't know if I want that kind of accountability in my life. I'm just being honest. Secondly, my goal today is not to make you feel guilty about not reading the Bible. Some of you are already sitting there going, oh, he's going to talk about reading the Bible. I already know that. I'm also not going to go, you need to read the Bible. No brainer, Sherlock. I already know you guys are going out. I've never met a single serious Christian or like, I don't need to read the Bible. We all want to read the Bible more, but we don't. Why? This is what we're going to talk about today. I don't want us to walk out here today going, I should, I have to. I want you to walk out here today saying, I want to because it's not about a checklist. It's not about if I do that, God loves me more. It has nothing to do with that. It's about intimacy. It's about hearing from the voice of the Father and entering into intimacy with God. Don't you want intimacy with God? And God says, the way that I've communicated, the way that you listen, the way that we communicate, I've written it down and given it to you in the Word. Now, having said that, it's really a no-brainer again. If some of us are sitting and going, I don't regularly read the Bible. I can't remember the last time I regularly read the Bible. I don't even think. I need you to listen carefully as we talk about the importance of this today. I don't want you to walk out and going, I have to, I should. If you do, I failed miserably at my job today. I want you to walk out and going, so the end goal is intimacy. It's not about what I have to do to earn God's approval and checklist and be a better Christian. It's about intimacy. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is where we are going to park ourselves today. And we're going to look at a ton of passages. So I'm going to go through some slides real fast. So if you're taking notes, write down the text because I'd love for you to look further at these texts and meditate on Psalm 119. The author of Psalm 119 is David. A lot of scholars have debated who the author is, but, but a lot of scholars and rabbis think it's King David, our famous David. It is second longest chapter in the Bible. There are 176 verses, okay? We're going to read all of them, okay? 176 verses. No, we are not going to read all. No, 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 come on. It's separated into 22 sections, and each section begins with these headings, Aleph, Beit, Gimel. Do you know what those are? Aleph, Beit, and Gimel, they're not words. You know what they are? They are, does anybody know? The Hebrew alphabet. Hebrew alphabet. So essentially, there's 22. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So essentially, Psalm 119, this is so cool, are divided into 22 sections with the heading of the Hebrew alphabet, under each heading. Why? Did you know that most Jewish kids, by the time they were 12, had most of the first five books of the Old Testament memorized? Did you know that that was the discipline? And if you're sitting there going, Bible memory verse, who could do that? Can I, how many songs do you have memorized by heart? Right? How many, <laughs> I've met people who have memorized full episodes of The Simpsons, Okay. Like you're sitting there and they've literally memorized the entire episode. How many of us have vast sections of movies memorized so that when we watch it, we're like talk, saying the dialogue before it comes up? Anyway, it's not a matter of whether we could. It's a matter of whether we want to. And these Jewish boys, by the time they were 12, memorized. And the reason why Psalm 119 is separated that way is this. Every verse in each section begins with the first letter of that alphabet. 
So the first section, Aleph, every verse begins with the letter A. Okay? And the second section, Beit, every word. Why? It was to help them memorize it better. Okay? So Psalm 119, 22 sections, 176 verses. We are going to primarily look at verses 97, oh, seven, eight verses, but we'll jump around Psalm 119. Here we go. Psalm 119, verse 97. Let's read this together. Ready? Go. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all. Okay, like read it like you mean it. Okay. <laughs> I understand you're reading it going, I don't mean it because I don't do it and I don't feel it. I know that already. But just fake me out for a second, okay? Let's read it together. Here we go. Ready? Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And of course, someone's going, give me a break. You have a life. You love the law. You meditate on it all day long. You know why meditating on the Bible seems so, like, intimidating to us? Can I ask you a question? How many of you are, have you worried? How many of you know what it's like to worry? Do you know what meditating is? Meditating is basically taking a thought and just turning it over and over and over and over and over. So if you know how to worry, you can meditate really well. Meditating is basically taking a thought and turning it over and over and over and over again. That's what meditation is. Okay? It's taking a thought, turning it over and over and over. And I, and I shared this 9 o'clock service. I think I shared this a while back. When I was a senior in high school, this girl that I was like really, really, really interested in, like, you know, we're kind of friends, and I was just completely attracted to her, so on and so forth. A friend of mine comes and goes, did you know that Grace likes you? I was like, she likes me. So the next day, I got the nerve to ask her out, and she was like, I don't like you. I was like, great. But, but. That night, I had the most incredible night just thinking about it and meditating on it, you know. She likes me. If you know how to worry, you can meditate. If you know how to take a thought and turn it over and over again, you know how to meditate. And the psalmist is literally going, I'm taking that thought. What thought is it? It's a vision of God loving you. It's a vision of God loving you. And this may sound a little corny, but can I tell you? Do you realize that our relationship with God, it's similar. sort of like he's way out of our league. He's like a part of the perfection league and we're part of the sinful humanity league. And yet, this God, all-loving, all-powerful, mysterious, wonderful God, through Christ, loves us unconditionally, powerfully. It's taking that thought, turning it over and over again. You know, wow, well, that's, that's just incredible. God, you, you love me like that. It's the gospel. And turning that thought over and over again, over and over again. Can I just ask you something? You guys hear the gospel, the gospel all the time. When's the last time you took like 10, 15 minutes just meditating on the truth of the gospel? And just turning that thought over and over. Although I'm wicked and sinful more than I can believe, in Christ I'm more loved and accepted than I dared hope at the same time. Whoa, whoa. Although I'm more wicked and sinful than I dare believe, in Christ I'm more accepted and loved than I dare. Whoa, whoa. When's the last time you just meditated on it and meditated on it? Now when David says, I love your law, we're going to do this. This is I love your law. It meant something for him, and then it means something for us. What did it mean for David? You got to realize for David, King David, when he says the law, remember for him at the time, he only had the first five books of the Bible. So he had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, and then the laws, or Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And if you've read Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, it seems like a bunch of do's and don'ts requirements, right? And it's got all these ceremonial washing and how to gut an animal and how to dress and all that. And David is literally saying that stuff, that stuff that you and I, 2013, go, oh my gosh, what is that all about? David's looking at it going, I love that. I can't get enough of it. It's sweeter than honey. 
I love, he, I mean, he is just pouring over and going, I, why, 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 why? Because, review, David understood all the laws in the context of, do you remember, a covenant relationship. Do you remember that three weeks ago? Covenant relationship. The entire Bible, if you don't understand covenant relationship, it's not going to make any sense. It's in the context of a covenant relationship, which was at the time culturally the most intimate of relationships. The equivalent today is wedding, is marriages. A marriage is a covenant, and at the time, that's what a covenant was, most intimate relationships. And David understands that all the commands, all the laws, all the rules and regulations are not some devoid of meaning. He's looking at all of them and saying, it's in the context of a loving relationship. And the laws that we find in those three books are like the terms of a covenant, or today, wedding vows. I can ask you something. When's the last time you thought of the commands of the Bible as vows between two spouses? When's the last time you and I thought the wedding vow? How many? Look, I've officially a ton of weddings, and when I do the vows with some guy, I don't have to ask him. So, do you understand that this is not like forced compliance? So, do you understand that you have to do this in order? Every guy or woman that stands at the altar and takes the vows, they're going, I am agreeing to do this because I know you love me unconditionally. I am doing this because I know I'm already accepted by you. I am doing this because we are so tight that nothing will come between us. I already know that. So it's not forced compliance. It is gladly, willingly, joyfully. That's the reason why David goes, I love your laws. He's not looking as a bunch of requirements, do's and don'ts. Listen very carefully. To earn God's favor, to earn God's approval, to some, God, somehow God will love me more. David knows we are in a covenant relationship. I am already loved. I am already accepted. I am already in. Nothing can come between us. And this commands of God is not a way to earn God's approval, but it's to someone who already has God's approval. It's a response to the fact that I am loved by my beloved. David looks at the commands of God and going, God, and I, listen to me. If you look at the Bible and obedience to it as a way to earn God's approval so he can love you more, which I don't even have to go, do you relate to this? There are some of you and you're going, obedience to the Bible, acceptance of what God says, doing it. That is how God loves me. That is how, some of you guys who are not Christian, maybe you're just visiting and going, isn't that what Christian is? If I, I, let me tell you something. Give me like 30 seconds. The essence of Christianity says this. Jesus Christ has come. He has fulfilled all the requirements and laws of the Bible for us. And when we accept and believe in faith and repent in the work that Christ has done, God looks at us and says, I already look at you as if you've done all of it. That's the gospel. Is that good news? So Christians, you need to understand. We don't look at the Bible and go, I need to do this so that God can love me. We look at it and go, this is a response to the fact that I'm already loved in Christ. I love your law. What does it mean for us? Now, here's the other interesting. You ready? So that's what it meant for David. There are two places in the New Testament where Jesus is speaking, and he's quoting directly from the Psalms, okay, which was poetry. Now, most of the Bible is history, narrative, and poetry. It's not the laws, the three books of the Pentateuch. It's, and, and yet Jesus quotes it, and then he says this. He quotes the Psalms, and he goes, as it is written in the law. In other words, Jesus, throughout the New Testament, is seeing the entire Bible as the law. Why? What is the significance of that? I'm going to put it up here. Ready? Jesus saw the entire Bible as being authoritative for all time and places in its every part. Jesus saw the entire Bible as being authoritative for all time and places in its every part. In other words, Jesus didn't look at the Bible and go, well, there's some suggestions there. Jesus looked at the Bible and go, oh, there's some good guidelines there. 
Jesus didn't look at the Bible and go, well, this is first century, but you know, in 2013, y'all will make up and decide what is applicable and what is not. Jesus didn't go pick and choose the Bible that you like, you don't like, people, things that offend you, you can leave that. Jesus saw the entire Bible is authoritative for all time and places, and it's every part. And the psalmist in 119 hammers away at this over and over and over again. Let me show you. Verse 4. I'm just going to, just a few verses that you find in Psalm 119. Psalm 19, verse 4. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Fully obeyed. Verse 42. I trust in your word. I trust in your word. Verse 43. I put my hope in your laws. Verse 44. I will always obey your law forever and ever. 151. All your commands are true. And verse 160. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. The psalmist is going, every single word of the Bible is absolutely authoritative for all time and places in its every part. Can I just ask you, how many of you guys just grew up assuming this? You're like, I got that. Don't spend much time on it. Totally authoritative. Let's move on. Some of us? And you even quote Bible verses like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, right? Which is all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And some of us in here going, Bible authoritative for all time, places, and everybody. I got it. Let's move on. And then, though, there are some of you in here, and then there's large segments of our culture who go, are you serious? There's some parts of the Bible good for moral teaching, good for suggestions, good for, you know, being good people, but all the Bible, totally authoritative, and all its parts? That sounds a little backwards to me. Can I just suggest something to you? I would argue today, that unless you see the Bible as being totally authoritative for every place and every part, you cannot have a personal relationship with God. You cannot have a personal relationship with God. Now, if you're sitting there going, that's offensive to me, let me explain. Um, how many of you guys are in personal relationships with people? I'm not talking about like romantic. I'm talking about just personal relationships with people. All of us? Now, here's the thing about relationships, right? Personal relationships. They're messy. They're hard. They're... Uh, they're, they're, they're pain in the, you know what, sometimes. And they take a lot of work and a lot of effort. Do you know why? Because they talk back to you. Because they challenge you. Because they tell you things that you don't want to hear. True? Because they challenge your independence. The relationship with my wife is very personal. Why? Because I don't get to go, you don't get to challenge me. You don't get to question me. I get to do whatever I want to, whenever I want to, how I want to. I am independent. That's not a personal relationship. That's a relationship with a robot, maybe a human robot, but that's not a personal relationship. I would argue that's an exploitative relationship. Okay, so here's my question to you. How do you have a personal relationship with a God? If you go, I don't like that, so I'm not going to take it. I don't agree with that, so I'm going to ignore that. How do you have a personal relationship with a God unless you have a God who comes and says to you, I'm going to say some things you don't like. I'm going to say some things that are offensive to you. I'm going to say some things to you that you're going to be like, are you serious about believing in that? How do you have a personal relationship with God unless you have a personal God who comes to you and challenges your independence, challenges your thinking, challenges the way of acting, challenges you about your independence? How do you have a personal relationship with God? One of my favorite authors, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said this. It stuck with me. He said, if, 
It is I who say where God will be. I will always find there a false God. If I, it is I who say where God will be, I always, what is he saying? He's saying, if I have a God who never says anything offensive to me, who never says things I don't like, who never says things that contradict me, who never, he's, he's going, you don't have a personal relationship with the real God. That's a God of your imagination. That's a God of your making. That's a God of your doing. Do you have a personal relationship with a God? A personal relationship with a God who comes to you in his word, challenges you. Do you have a personal relationship with God who comes to you and tells you things you don't want to hear? A God who makes you do things even though you don't want to do them. The psalmist says, all your words are true. All your commands are true. He he is believing in the perfectly authoritative God of the Bible. And you know what's interesting when you read Psalm 119? It's, I mean, literally, he's weeping. He's sobbing. He's rejoicing. He's quiet. He talks back. It pulsates with life like a real relationship. A real relationship with the real living God. I propose to you that believing... The Bible is God's word and perfectly authoritative. It's not just a deterrent or hindrance to a personal relationship with God. I would say it's a precondition. Verse 98. Verse 90, here we go. He says, your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they're ever with me. Verse 99. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. And verse 100. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Insight, wisdom, understanding. Insight, wisdom, understanding. Insight. This is, and I said this earlier this morning, you guys, at 9 o'clock. This is so important for me about what it means to read the Bible, what it means for the Bible to speak to us and God to speak to us. Because, because the way that the psalmist is approaching this, he's saying this. He's going, look, look. He's saying, I've spent so much time in your word. I have so much, so much time in your word, meditating on it, reading it, uh, memorizing it, and turning it, o- turning the thought over and over again. He's saying, I have so much, I've done, I've, I've done that so much that he says, God has given me wisdom, insight, understanding. Now, do you know what wisdom, insight, understanding is? Let me just put it up here. Wisdom is the ability to look at life from God's point of view. It's the entire book of Proverbs. Entire book of Proverbs. Wisdom is the ability to look at life from God's point of view. Insight is the ability to see through life. And it's circumstances from God's point of view. And understanding is the ability to respond to life situations from God's point of view. I've spent so much time in your word. You give me insight, wisdom, and understanding. I've spent so much time in your word. You've given me wisdom, insight, understanding. I'll tell you why this is important. For a long period of my life as a Christian, the way that I heard and the way that I thought and the way that I perceived God speaking to me was like this. And this is embarrassing, but I'm going to admit it to you. There were times when I needed God to speak to me, and I would do the whole thing. I would close the Bible. And I would go, God, I need you to speak. I need you to speak. And if you've done this, and then I would open the Bible, and I would do the pointing thing, and I would go, oh, so that's what God says. Anybody? I'm the only one? Some of us are honest to admit, we, we do that. And we go, God, that's how you're going to speak, right? Or, or, or we do this. We somehow think, God, if I pray enough and, and read the Bible, I'm going to see specific instructions to specific questions I have. Anybody? The problem is when you read the Bible, it doesn't say, hey, Peter, it's Julie and not Jane, you dummy. The Bible doesn't go, hey, stay in Chicago and don't 
go to Miami. The Bible doesn't say move here and don't go. The Bible doesn't say this church, that church. The Bible doesn't say that. What does the Bible do? The Bible says if you would meditate, study, read my words that's given to you, I'm going to give you wisdom, insight, and understanding. And wisdom, insight, and understanding. Billy, look at life from God's perspective. See through life from God's perspective and respond. Become the basis and the foundation for how you make decisions in life. God says the word is given to me to reveal my thoughts and my ways and my way of being in such a way that when you saturate yourself with that, I give you the ability, no matter what the situation is about marriage, relationships, finances, your future ministry, you're able to make wise, God-honoring decisions because you have wisdom, insight, and understanding. How many is in there this morning going, I've got some major decisions I need to make, I need to... And you're going, how do I? God's going, it's not a five-minute prayer and open the Bible one point. It's not a God, I need you to speak to the sermon. God could do all kinds of things, but God says, the primary way in which I have spoken and revealed my will is if you would meditate, study, dwell, chew on, read my word. Such a way that you have wisdom, insight. Let me put it this way. If we can see as God sees, we will be way more inclined to do as God says. If I can see as God sees, look at life from God's perspective, look underneath the surface of life from God's perspective and respond. If I can see as God sees, I will do as God says. How many of us this morning approach seriously the Bible, you guys, as do's and don'ts? Or the Bible has got some very context-specific things so God, I need you to speak. Is it yes or no? Is it a blue one or the red one? Is it this house or that house? Is it him or her? And God's going, it's not the issue. It's not about that. I want to give you wisdom, understanding, and insight. So you have a basis and a foundation to be able to view life, to be able to make decisions, to be able to live your life from my perspective. And then he says, a very specific example, verse 119, 101. Look at this. He goes, so I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. Verse 102, I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. This is incredible. David is going, God, it's not just an audible voice. You are speaking to me through the Bible. You are speaking to me. You are teaching me through your word. Verse 103, how sweet. How sweet are your words to my taste. It's sweeter than honey to my mouth. This guy's incredible. Verse 104. And then he says, I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. This is so huge. This is so huge. Do you know what David's saying? He's saying, God, as a result of spending time in your word, as a result of gaining wisdom, insight, and understanding, he's going, I see as you see. I see maybe not things I would have seen before. I see as you see. I see through the shallowness, the allurement, and the lies behind sin. Can I ask you guys something? How many of us made decisions because we thought doing something promised freedom? Like that's going to, and then we wound up afterwards realizing all it did was enslave us. Now, if, you were, if I were to talk to you, and if you were to talk to me before that, and you would have said, do you know what this is going to lead to? You and I, you, you and I would have been like, this is going to lead to freedom. This is going to And afterwards we're going, all it did was enslaved. 
Let me give you another example. How many of us, how many of us have been in situations with sin where we thought this pleasure is going to last forever, but then only to realize it lasted maybe like five seconds? Anybody? The psalmist is going, I can give you the ability to see truth behind sin. Truth behind sin and the shallowness of it and the fleeting pleasure of it and the lies behind it. I can give you the ability to see so you don't make self-destructive decisions so that you don't do self-destructive things. He's saying, I can give you wisdom, insight, and discernment into seeing the truth. Listen to me. It's not just God. I mean, guys, humanly speaking, how many of us in those moments when we made poor decisions that just had catastrophic consequences, had people around us going, do you see what I see? How many of us had people going, don't go down that path? How many of us had people in our lives going, don't be with that group of people? People who are speaking to you. And yet, for us, there's this fog. There's this thing that just goes, all of that stuff. It doesn't make any sense. It's not true. I'm just going to. And Paul and all the psalmist is going, I can give you wisdom, understanding, insight to what that's really about. And then he says, in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and the light for my path. I mean, anybody here grew up on Amy Grant in like the 1980s? Will you all sing this with me? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light. And if you have no idea what we're singing about, you are a lucky person, okay? You're a lucky soul. I still remember this. I'm sorry, this is totally random. Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant, if you're going, who are these people? These are like Christian contemporary artists. And if you're going, what is a Christian contemporary artist? Again, you are a lucky person, okay? They came to Purdue, and they had this massive concert my sophomore year. And we're all sitting there going, thy word. And I'm sitting there going, what the heck are you singing about? I have no idea. And you know what? I actually thought, you know what this verse meant? You're worthy of them up to my feet. I, I thought, again, I'm thinking, God, somehow if I do your thing or read your word, you're going to give me specific instructions, right? About some things that I'm supposed to do. That's not what Paul's saying. Uh, saying. The psalmist is going, what he's been saying all along. I am going to, through my word, be a compass. Be the anchoring north star. Be the thing that guides you. Not just for that, not just for that, but all aspects of life. All aspects of life. So that the decision to make in accordance with my will. In the ways that I've given them. Because you can see as I see, which will make you more inclined to do as I do. Look, some practical application, as I look at my life and what meditating, reading, intentionally setting aside time to be in God's Word has done for me, just three things real quick, three things. When you do this, you know what? The Bible will begin to make more sense. The Bible will begin to make more sense. What do I mean? I've met folks in our church who literally said this. They said, you know, before I became a Christian or when I became a Christian, I would read the Bible and I would hear like, sex is only for marriage. And the person would be like, that's like the dumbest thing I've ever, sex for marriage. Like we're in 2013. Like wasn't that written like in the first century when they got married, like when they were 12? So of course you can do sex for marriage. We're getting married in our 20s. And 40s. You guys have, I've preached on this before. And God's going, if you would look at sex from my perspective, it would make perfect sense why I say it's for marriage. Forgive somebody indefinitely. 
I've preached on this like last year. To the comment, forgive somebody indefinitely, you got to be, are you, and yet. The reason why Jesus says forgive someone indefinitely, when you really, Jesus goes, if you would see forgiveness as I see forgiveness, it would make perfect sense. Why I need to forgive and be set free from that toxic anger and bitterness that's held you captive. Love your enemies. The list goes on. God's going, if you would understand and see my word from my perspective, things would make, as a parent, again, another human example, I'm, I'm a father of an eight-year-old now, eight-year-old and a five-year-old, two-year-old. Parker, he thinks he knows everything. My wife is like, I wonder where he gets that from, right? He thinks he knows everything, right, the kid? And there are times when I want to go, Parker, Parker, if you would just, if you would just see from my perspective, and I'm a flawed, fallible, sinful, 43-year-old human being. I want to go, 8-year-old, if you would just see from my perspective about friendship, about friendship and what friendship is, you might not make those decisions. Parker, if you would only see relationships as I see them, you might not. Parker, if you would only see homework the way Daddy sees homework, you will do your homework and not complain. You know, and I think sometimes God wants to grab you and me in a loving, gentle, and yet firm way. Our Heavenly Father wants to grab us and go, I want you to see the perspective that I see. Because I have the ability to see the beginning, the middle, and the end of that situation. I wish that you can see that I don't see life by three by five glossy snapshots. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. God's going, I want you to see that I paint on the canvas of the universe. If you could only see what I see, you may do as I say. How many of us, because we don't have wisdom, understanding, and insight, because we're looking at life by three by five, that, well, that doesn't make any, of course, God's going, I see, and I paint on the canvas of the universe. And if you would see what I see, wisdom, insight, understand. Second thing that happens, Actually, God's desires become, become your desires. God's desires become our desires. One of the most misinterpreted, misunderstood verses in the Bible, Psalm 37, 4. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your Honest time, honest time. How do many of us imper- interpret this verse? We go, delight yourself in the Lord. You know how we did We go, delight yourself in the Lord. God, I'm good, I obey, so on and so forth, and then you will what? You'll give me what I want, right? You know what we're saying? This we're going, if you were so saturated, so meditate, so consume yourself in my word, my desires will become your desires. You know, interesting about relationships, guys, engage people, engage people. Isn't it amazing how the one that you love, you take on the desires of the one that you love? Their desires become your desires. And it's not a forced thing. I shared this morning, there was a time, and you would never believe this if you know me now, there was a time I didn't even like Thai food. Thai food was just like, What? Didn't even like Thai food. Then they're like, you know, I like Thai. You know, I love Thai food now. Even way more. My wife introduced me to Thai food. She's like, you got to try it. I'm like, I don't want to try it. It smells funny. It looks funny. She's like, she goes, Korean food smells funny. It looks funny. All right. I'm like, it's true. Okay. I guess to all ages. So, Thai food. When we're dating. So she took me. Thai food. Thai food. Now? Are you kidding me? Jenny's like, I don't want Thai food. I'm like, I want me some Thai. Her desires. Do you know what happens? You know what happens? Can you imagine what would happen if God's desires became your desires? It's a beautiful thing, Carlton says, and I agree. Do you know what else would happen? Listen, listen, the flip side of that, 
Not only do God's desires become your desires, but here's the thing. Listen carefully, please, please, please. The thing that God hates and detests, you start hating. You start detesting. I've shared this before. Husbands in our church that are addicted to pornography, I tell them, if your motivation is, I don't want to be punished. If your motivation is, I don't, if that's your motivation, you will never have power and motivation to overcome it. Do you know what the ultimate motivation is to be? Why would I do this and hurt the person that I love the most? Why would I do this and hurt the person that I cherish with all of my heart? Has that ever been your motivation towards sin? It's not, oh, he's going to punish me. Oh, he's going to be angry. Have you ever looked at sin as, God, I am so aligned with your desires? That's the thing that you hate? I hate it. thing that you detest? I detest it. Why? Why would I do that? It's the one that I love. Why? The third thing that happens God's will begins to reveal things in us. God will begin to reveal things in us and things about us that we didn't even know about before. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. This is one of those, you know, one of those verses you just got to sit on. Verse 4 to 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I'll tell you what this has meant for me. The most profound changes in my life and the awareness, it didn't come from sermons. It didn't come from tapes. It didn't come from podcasts. It didn't come from books. The most profound ways in which God, I heard God in challenge, was me alone in the quietness of my office in my room with the Bible open and open heart saying, God, I need you to speak. And it's during those times where I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit coming and going, Peter, do you see those insecurities that's driving all those dysfunctional relationships? And a lot of times, honestly, my, my response is, God, I didn't even know that was there. No, it's there. It's there. Last year when I took some time off, it was in the quietness of that that I heard God's voice going, Peter, you have an anger issue. You have an anger problem. You're really angry. I've had one person my entire life who told me that I struggle with anger. She's had an anger problem. It was my wife. My wife's like, you're an angry person. I'm like, angry person? I'm like the most pleasant person. Man, what are you talking? She's like, no, you're angry. I didn't listen to her. One day during those two or three months I took off, it was just so deafeningly loud. God coming and going, when are you going to deal with that anger? That's causing you to hurt me. When's the last time you sat and God, through his word, came to you? Things that you didn't even know that you struggled with. And God began to, hey, hey. And the flip side of this is not just issues and bad things, but it's also in that moment that God really makes the gospel come alive and real to you. Listen to me. You could hear a thousand sermons about the gospel. God loves you. I guarantee you. A lot of times they're like, a lot of times they're like, yeah, I heard that before. It's not until the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and you hear God speaking to you. There's word going, you are not accepted because you perform. You're accepted because of Christ. Stop the striving. 
You're loved. Not because you're perfect and righteous. Because let's get real. You're, you'll never be perfect and righteous on your own. But because of Christ's righteousness and Christ's perfection. When is the last time in the word you heard God's voice like Niagara Falls just pouring over you? And last time you stood under that Niagara Falls just having his word washing over you. Hearing First John 3, 2. Beloved, for we are children of God and loved. That is what we are. That is what we are. Here's a prayer. I encourage you to incorporate into scripture intake. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more, but here's the prayer. The prayer is this. And by the way, um, I had a few people say, can you email that? We're going to go ahead and put this in the bulletin for next year so that you, or next, or next week so you know. Heavenly Father, let the light of your word shine into the dark places of my heart. Let the promises of your word encourage my soul. Let the truth of your word reshape my attitude. And let the wisdom of your word guide my decisions. What would happen if you committed and intentionally incorporated that prayer into a regular daily part of your life as you open the word? Now, I, I want to tell you probably the most exciting thing for me in Psalm 119, and that is that the psalmist actually here says, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. The attitude of the psalmist, Carlton, we're almost done. The attitude of the psalmist over the Bible is like over the top, almost inappropriately. Like if you read the entire Psalm 119, you're like, it's kind of embarrassing actually. Like, oh, because he's literally talking as if he's talking to real life person. Let me give you examples. Psalm 19, verse 24, it says, Your statutes are my delight. They're my counselor. He's going, the Bible, you're my counselor. You're my counselor. Uh, verse 37, turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. You know what I'm saying? He's saying, your word, it saves me. The Bible, it saves What? The Bible saves me. And then verse 47, it says, I delight in your commands because I love them. I lift up, listen, I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. He's not saying, God, I lift my hands to you. He's saying, I lift up my hands to the Bible. Lifting up my hands was a Hebrew expression for worship. He's going, I'm worshiping the Bible. He's sitting there going, is that even appropriate to go, you're my counselor. Is it appropriate to go, you saved me. Is it appropriate to go, I worship you. It is when you and I understand that the text took on flesh and became who? Became who? Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The text became flesh and took on Jesus Christ. Listen to what John says in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, I hope you're tracking here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became, what? Say it with me. Flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Revelation 19.13, His name is the Word of God. So the Bible, the psalmist saying, Your Word, the Bible, is my counselor. 2,000 years later, the text took on flesh, and it became Jesus, wonderful counselor. The Bible, your word saves me. The Bible is my savior. The text took on flesh and became Jesus, Yeshua, savior. The text took on flesh. You go, why? Some of you are like, oh, I knew that already. Why? The question is why. And this is, 
the key to understanding 119 Psalm in the whole Bible. Why do you use words? Why do you communicate so that you can know my desires, so you can know my heart, so you can know what I'm really feeling, what I'm desiring, what I'm inside? That's why we communicate. And God goes, I've communicated in two ways. I've given you the text, but he says, that wasn't enough. I also took on flesh and bone and became man. Do you remember earlier when I said uh, a personal relationship is one in which you lose your independence, your will is crossed, you lose control, you're contradicted? So how do we have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe? How do we have a personal relationship with God? How does God lose his independence? How does God get crossed? How does God ever get contradicted? How does God... And he realized, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's what he's praying. The Son of God. Father, I know that I've come to die for the sins of the world. I know that I'm going to carry the cross and be tortured and crucified. That's why I've come. And then he says... Nevertheless, what? Not my will, but your will be done. You can't get your will crossed more than when you're nailed to a tree. You can't lose your independence anymore when you've got the weight of the entire world sin on your shoulders dying to pay. The reason why we could have a personal relationship with God is because Jesus became text, flesh, and on the cross, the ultimate example of the God of the universe losing his independence, losing control, losing his will. For who? Josh, for who? Tyranny, for who? For you and for me so that the creator of the universe can say personal relationship with me is possible if you don't understand this you misread the entire bible you'll read save me according to your word as oh i gotta do obey in order to be saved and it becomes this toxic religiosity until you realize the text became flesh Jesus Christ did all the things that we needed to do so that when we believe and repent of our sins, His righteousness and perfection and a relationship is possible. The text became Jesus and in Jesus, in Jesus, save me according to your word becomes this beautiful cry, beautiful prayer of there's nothing that I can do, Jesus, to be saved. But you lived the life I should have lived and you died the death I should have died. You took my sins and unrighteousness and in return, you gave me your perfection and righteousness. So save me according to your word becomes this beautiful, beautiful declaration of the gospel. Do you know why I preach the way I do? Why do I talk about Jesus all the time? Because it doesn't matter Genesis, Revelation, prophet, King, priest, Jesus Christ was the ultimate prophet, ultimate priest, ultimate king. Sacrifices in the temple, Jesus is ultimate sacrifice. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. 
everything. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word become flesh. Jesus Christ has made it possible for you and I to know Him, to be known by Him, to be in intimacy with Him. He invites us this week he invites you. And the invitation is not to give you a good yelling or spanking. Invitation is for intimacy. He waits for you. He waits for me. Accept his invitation. Even if you have to wait a little bit, I would encourage you to make sure you sign up. Get in groups and community as we pursue this journey together for the next 100 days. Have a great week, church family. See you back here next Sunday as we worship our God. Take care.